0: Audio the big question podcast with chris mcintosh welcome everyone it has been a very long time since i've last done a podcast and i basically actually gave up doing them because really i got too busy with managing Glenwalkie capital together with my team there and everything else in life and so um What I have just recently done was I spoke to a very good friend of mine, Tracy Shukart, who is a fantastic oil analyst. And Tracy and I correspond regularly on a weekly basis. But, you know, we never sit down and record anything. And so a few weeks back, we said, well, you know what, we should probably do this for um, our respective listeners. And so I sat down and I chatted to her. And um, hopefully you'll find the conversation interesting. And if you do, please share it with um, all your friends, your family, and all the people that you don't like as well. So um, with that intro, um, I'd like to dig straight into it, and I hope you enjoy the recorded call with Tracy. Okay, folks, today I am speaking with a good friend, Tracy Shukart, who you've probably been following, and if you haven't, you bloody well should which is Chee Girl on Twitter. And um, Tracy, you and I have been you know, offline discussing all sorts of manner of things, and um, you've been a super valuable resource to me. So I thank you for that on the, on the energy markets. And I figured today we'd just um, sit down and chew the fat on, on all things that we're seeing going on in the world, um, probably beginning with energy, because, uh, I mean, energy is the lifeblood of a functioning economy. And it's, um, it's certainly we're in a situation where it's the most extreme and extraordinary setup that I've experienced in my professional career and probably in yours too. So why don't we dig into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, looking at the energy sector, well, and, and this is coming from, you know, uh, I, I've been a bear forever. Right. And um, so, you know, the switch kind of came for me and in, you know, 2020, after we saw that, uh, you know, energy prices went negative. That was crazy. But really what clicked for me was that we saw a different OPEC plus alliance and they were um, more consolidated than ever and more, you know, after that, that initial scare, Um so we kind of saw a switch there that was kind of a click so I knew that we would see a lot more cooperation from them instead of everybody cheating and everything else. And then just the sheer fact that you know production dropped off a cliff, you know you had to look at um, every country and know that production was not coming back you know anytime. Soon, You know, particularly if you look in the shale industry, I mean, we already had a lot of problems and issues going on in that industry. We were already seeing a ton of bankruptcies and uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, but that really, really took a toll in the industry. So, you know, I knew at that point, kind of, we were never going to see 13.9 million barrels again, which was basically the hype in uh, 2019. Um, so, you know, as you take that landscape and look at it, you know, your production's not coming back, but demand bounced back much quicker than everybody thought and is continued to, is expected to grow, right? And then we can bring in the whole green energy transition, right? Where um, we have countries trying to transition too fast, which is you know, kind of the basis for the energy crisis that we're seeing in Europe right now. Um, Poor energy policies, trying to transition too fast, trying to have intermittent power sources as a baseload, which is practically impossible. Um, And then, uh, you know, that leads to, you know, the greenflation topic. And I know I'm kind of encompassing a lot initially, but um, you know when we look at this new green agenda, right and we're trying to transition and have um, you know build all these batteries and EVs and wind turbines and solar panels, et etc, we need a ton of metals for these which you know, which we don't have enough of. Um, and then in order to produce those metals to produce those products, um, that requires an enormous amount of energy. Right, and so um, it's a very big cycle that we're in right now. I think a very big up cycle in, in the commodities industry in general.
0: Yeah, you're talking about EVs. You know, I was just doing some research. I was actually looking last night, and if you strip out, this is if we take Europe as an example, because Europe's in this crazy, ridiculous quandary <laughs> um, where. You know, the gas prices are um, going through the roof. Um, Their ability to go out and and source any other natural gas, say from the the United States, um, is diminished or gone because they were outbid by the Chinese and the Japanese. And so there's just no supply, which ties into what you were mentioning with the shale. So when we had the shale revolution, you basically had excess gas supply, like tons of it, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. They were flaring it. Right. Um, and that particular cycle has gone because so many people lost their shirts in the shale um, driven. Well, and, and it was basically an industry that never really made money.
1: Ever. Um, right. <laughs> that, yeah. and, hey. and
0: so, so, so now when I look at Europe um, before this crisis, you had a situation where your diesel was still half as expensive. A diesel run car was half as expensive as an electric vehicle. If you stripped out subsidies. Okay. Now, I don't know what it is, but I don't need to know. Like if it was, if it is twice as expensive to have an EV pre-crisis, it's five, six, seven times more, whatever the case is, it's, it's extraordinarily more expensive um, because you're paying for the electricity. <clears throat> and then, as you quite correctly mentioned, you, you're not considering all of the, if, if we are to transition into having all these electric vehicles, we just don't have the materials that are required to have that take place. Um, you know, charging times of different weights of batteries, planned obsolescence of, of batteries isn't typically taken into account. And look, it's just all all of this is physics. Um of course, physics is probably racist today, but you know, the, <laughs> we we have this kind of weird setup. Um, and, and you know, at a macro level, and I know we've been discussing this on some channels, when you look at what's going on in, in Europe, the EU, due to extraordinary energy, extraordinarily bad energy mismanagement. Um and this sort of implementation of this green deal is has to collapse on an economic front just as a consequence of these much, much higher energy costs. And they have no fallback anymore because for decades they've been elim- eliminating um, their electricity. And, and when I say electricity, it's the basically it's the base load side of things, you know, and a lot of these politicians don't seem to get, the differentiation between electricity because, you know, wind and solar is all wonderful, but it doesn't provide baseload as does nuclear. Um, and, you know, Germany just, what, 31st of December, they just got rid of their three of their remaining six. Um, exactly. power, and they started off with 17 back in, I think it was 2014. So they've just been eliminating the, the you know, that, some sort of base load power side of things
1: which is incredible um, sorry to interrupt but it's incredible to think that europe is even considering nuclear as may or may not be a green source as well as natural gas right so they're still deciding should we include this which is uh, just incredible to me that and very short sighted
0: yeah so so now we have the situation where they're deep in an energy crisis. Um, part part of I was having a chat with um, my good mate Kappy, and you know he's saying, look, from what and I, and I tend to concur with him. He's saying from what he can tell, it's like it looks like it's a premeditated sort of thing. Where if you really crush fossil fuels, you cause the rise in price. And then it justifies the green, right? Because if you can go, oh well, oil's at 150 bucks a barrel. <clears throat> well, guess what? Green energy is so much more on a relative basis now, practical. But that that discounts the understanding of how an economy functions, and the fact that you need to build out a grid, which they have not done, and they they cannot actually do. Nobody's going um, to. <laughs> so so. The only way that that takes place is also for those green metals, if you will, to also go up substantially in price, such that the economic incentive to go and mine them takes place. And then you've got this feedback loop where it's like, no, well, we don't want to mine them because mining's bad. That's part of the whole fossil fuel industry. Exactly. Right? Because if you're going to mine copper, you need, you need these great giant diesel trucks. And then when you get copper out the ground, you could put in tankers that burn bunker fuel to move it. And so. The whole thing just kind of falls apart. Um, but on what, does, what I've been looking at and going back through sort of the historical periods is when you have something like this take place, extraordinary economic destruction, typically what politicians do in order to justify uh, their own existence um, is they will... So in this instance, I can see them turning around and saying, well, look, this is a proof that fossil fuels is a, is a bad thing. Look at how they're price gouging us. And we're seeing a lot of that coming through and their response of course, to it is price controls, which is going to have the exact opposite effect of what, what one would want because it's just going to increase actual prices because it limits the um, the supply because who wants to come in and, Operated in a market where your, your upside is capped and your opex is is rising. It doesn't make any sense. So you know we know what the results of that are. Um, but what what you what you often see, especially with totalitarian regimes, and certainly the European Union is one, um, is warmongering. And you know, w- when Kazakhstan hit. I first looked at and I was like, oh, yeah, energy prices rising." And I started looking more deeply into it, and um, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. I don't know for sure, but the fact that you're seeing a lot of this war rhetoric coming out on multiple fronts now um, ties in extraordinarily well with this entire energy crisis and, and economic crisis that we're seeing. Um, And there's a a good friend of mine who who runs a um, a political risk consulting firm, Um, and and he's always made a comment. He said, you know, wars happen when people want them to happen. They almost never happen for the reasons that you're told they happen. Um, And and then if we tie that in, it's like I've never, ever seen a war that's bad for energy prices.
1: (laughs) That is a fact.
0: So. So, so, you know, we have, we have this kind of um, extraordinary setup. Um, but let's, let's talk about base metals, because on the energy side of things, I think we, we certainly concur. We've got shale that's probably not coming back, not to the extent that it did sort of what that 2013 through 19 period was really a good sort of run for it so many holes, because it was all debt financed and they all lost their year and so coming back trying to Wall Street's not going to be able to replay that game
1: nobody's nobody wants to come back either I you know the banks don't even want to you know fund that because they have to uh, satiate their investors via this whole ESG uh mantra so you know you're just not going to see see you know the banks got burned the first shale uh, the first shale run then you had private equity got burned the second shale run and so really there's nobody left right now
0: the only the only uh, the only thing that i could see it potentially working is if they created some sort of etf um and they tied it in with carbon with it with like, some sort of carbon emission trading scheme or some bullshit like that, how they've managed to pull that off would be like difficult. But given the, the ridiculous things that we've seen, I'm like, well, that could actually happen.
1: I, I mean, I just don't see shale regardless. I, I They're not going to get funding. And you know, if you look at what the Biden administration is doing, you know, at the same time, he's saying, I want lower oil prices. He's putting... Um, Price controls and caps on, say, methane emissions, right? That's his next big thing because the Build Back Better bill that was full of uh, a lot of restrictions obviously is not happening or, you know, is facing uh, issues right now and can't be passed. So he's decided to just go in and do it by executive order. <laughs> it's new. Um, Um, And so, you know, all of those things are hindrance and they're costly for oil and gas companies. So it doesn't give them much incentive to produce more, right? If they're making more money per barrel producing less and they're going to be charged if they produce more, then, you know, there's a reason to kind of, you know, keep a cap on it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we've got, in in the sort of corporate institutional bracket, your Vanguard, your Black Rocks, all putting a lot of pressure on the whole fossil fuel side of things, um, pulling back, and um, you know what we're seeing is there's still capital, from what I can tell, flowing into the sort of you know larger entities, but there's very little. Like if if you take the sort of tail end of of Oil, it's like it's offshore exploration and drilling, and that is decimated. I mean, it's just it's it's a, it's been a bloodbath, um, which is fantastic hunting grounds, in, in my humble opinion. Um, but so you know, and that's where the stuff has normally come from, and and we're just not seeing. There's certainly there's no institutional capital going into that from Western-led institutions. Um, and so it's really leaving that entire space wide open for the Chinese and the Russians. Um, Absolutely.
1: I mean, all the new projects right now are... ...forging
0: at it um, and picking it up for cents on the dollar.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the new projects right now, offshore projects are really in Africa and South America and primarily funded by the Chinese.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we're seeing that entire shift taking place. Um, and then, if we look at the alternatives, shall we say, base metals? Um, ordinarily, you could look at base metals as an economic driver, and and it's it's hard to make a judgment for a um, shall we say economic growth. You could maybe make that call from the emerging markets a little bit, but certainly in the developed world markets, it's it's. You know we're in for tough times, um, but what's interesting is just the 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 lack of supply that um, that exists in that space. Again, you know, if you look at the previous kind of commodity bull market it ran through till sort of tail end twenty thirteen ish, um, and we it hasn't been good times ever since. Um, and so, and ordinarily, as you kind of start seeing. Um, the supply diminishing and the demand coming back, you start seeing exploration kick in, you start seeing funding start coming through. The majors, you know, may they may start picking up some of the um, smaller companies in MA transactions. And we're just not seeing a lot of that transpiring at all. And yet the prices can keep sort of creeping higher and higher. What are your thoughts on? that space and when i say that space i guess we could probably look at it's like copper um uh, magnesium lithium cobalt manganese nickel
1: i i mean if we look at that space first of all they have the same capex problem that the oil industry suffers from right so they've had seven years of um no growth in in CapEx, right? It dropped right off in uh, 2013 and never, you know, it's gone up and down a little bit, but never gained uh, the the amount that was uh, pre-2013. So they suffered from the same crisis as that. And then if you're looking forward to, um, you know, say uh, just demand in general, you know, I think that they were talking about like, in order to have enough lithium for what countries say their EV goals are by 2030, um, you know, taking green bushes, say, in Australia, which is one of the largest lithium mines there, basically, we need 20 more of those. And we don't, we don't have, that. <laughs> we don't, we don't have that we don't even have that in in the pipeline, whatsoever. No. Um, so I mean, you know, and that and that's the same thing, you know, it's the same thing with copper and it's the same thing with basically all of these metals, aluminum, uh, cobalt. Uh, you know, it's underfunded. Where it, what's interesting to me is that, you know, before everybody kind of looked for looked to China as the main driver of the demand in these uh in these metals. And I think and and judged it as, you know, is the economic growth right, Doctor Copper? Right, is that the health of an economy if no. it's the market's going up, right? Um, but I think what's interesting and I kind of I've been talking about now for, for a couple of years but you know I don't think China is going to be the main driver of these metals anymore with this green agenda and with this transition, and we're going to see a lot more demand come out of the West. So even if we do see China slowing a bit. Um, I don't think that's going to impact demand as much as it would have in the past. Um, and what's interesting, um, and on another note, what's interesting is I was just looking at, uh, you know, what happens to metals when Fed funds raise rates. Basically, you know, just raising rates, um, they rise, right? it, like within the looking forward 12 month period, Um, They rise by about 30% if you uh, take an average of um, all the last hiking cycles, um, which is also very, very interesting. Um, So we're kind of headed into perhaps a hiking cycle now, you know, I could, you know, I'm a kind of one and done on that one. but. But if, if the Fed raises rates as much as the market is saying that they're going to raise rates, it does happen to be very bullish for, for metals, and like copper in particular.
0: Yeah, it's your classic stagflation, right? Because when, when you understand that in the commodity space, it's a debt-driven market, right? You think about an oil rig, go and put an oil rig out there. Like, no expensive. Um, and so much of that entire industry is debt financed, um, and it's debt financed based on a longevity cycle. So, like you might say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to do X, Y, Z, and it's going to take us let's just say five years or seven years before we actually get the actual production stream online. Like this, if you're kind of low to go and say a mine, and so you need to you need to amortize out what you think it's going to look like. Over that time frame, and so if interest rates are rising, you you know you could have rates go up one percent, but you're gonna if if there's as soon as you move into a market environment where the market anticipates ever higher rates, it's not your base rate that people are looking at in these long time frame markets. What they're looking at is what it's likely to be in five, six, seven years' time. And they begin pricing that in. And what it does is it eliminates a lot of projects, which would otherwise be economical based on current market data. So you might say, okay, copper price is X, interest rates are Y, let's work it out. Yes, that's profitable. But what you're doing is you're saying, ah, but hang on, rates are rising. So yes, that X, but we think they're going to be X plus plus four percent, or whatever the case might be, over this time frame, and hence our Y variable changes such that we need a copper price that is Y times three, right? Or some, you know. So, so then you go, okay, we're not doing it. It's too risky for us because we need to make sure that our bondholders can be paid out, and we can keep this thing alive and everything else. And so you kind of move into the cycle and then constriction and supply then feeds into a situation where um, there's less supply higher prices and as the prices go up typically you have got this environment where you've, you've got inflationary pressures and in the fed or the ecb or whoever the central bank is Are trying to contain those. So they're they're hike rates even more. Exactly. And so you you know, then you oh, (laughs) we we thought it was Y plus four, it's now Y plus five. And so you can really get this this real squeeze in a market, which is trying to price probabilities out over a cost curve that's that's multi-year in in nature. And what we we've always had that, but we've never had it to the extent and the extremes that we have it today, as a consequence of the green agenda, as a consequence of global shutdowns, supply chains breaking down, and all these other fun things that that um, have been taking place. Um, and so, one of the things that we've been focused on, and I know um, you've been tweeting a bunch about it as well, is how this all feeds through into Food production and um, and cost of food,
1: absolutely. Which,
0: given that you're in um, uh, the, the sort of uh, gentler version of North Korea at the moment, where <laughs> where there's there's um, the mandates to um, to halt all trucking coming in, from truckers that are not vaccinated, um, I just saw. A video last night with a trucker and then I followed that up and I spent some time. I don't know for sure and maybe you can help me on this but it seems that the basic numbers that it looks like right now are that roughly 50% of those truckers are unvaccinated right. Right. and of the fruit and vegetables, roughly 90% of that supply comes from the United States. Correct. So what you're looking at is possibly 30, 40% of supply being shut off overnight. Um, what are your numbers looking at?
1: Completely. What, so, what's, is that- yep, that's correct. That's exactly. I mean, I've been tweeting about it. I've been writing about it as well. But, um, you know, and that's just uh, fruits and vegetables, you know, in Canada during the winter, right? Um, but, you know, that extends to it's not just food, right? It's also automobile parts. It's also um, oil and gas to some extent that's struck, um, not all of it, but, you know, there is still oil and gas that's trucked over the border. Um, that includes um, any building materials, right? Lumber prices, we just saw incredible rebound, right? From, uh, you know, we yeah. were at 1800, fell to 500. Now we're back to, I think, 11 or 1200, right? And US gets most of its lumber from Canada from British Columbia. So um, that's going to add fuel to the fire um, in that industry. I mean, it's going to, you know, it affects more than just food and it's incredibly self-induced. Like (laughs) there is no reason for two years, truck drivers were considered essential drivers and they didn't have any restrictions. And um, suddenly they have, restrictions at the oddest time when we're seeing most a lot of the world kind of you know backtrack on uh or let's say uk for example today um you know got rid of all or is getting rid of other restrictions so it's very interesting time that um suddenly two years within this you're going to to decide to stop industry over vaccines
0: (laughs) that's fascinating to watch because you're seeing completely opposite trajectories being taken. You know, Mexico dropped all of their restrictions um, at the same time as Germany and Austria and Italy ramped up their restrictions. Um, Canada, as you know, is going complete full retard. Um, yes. Australia, um, same sort of thing. Um, and And so, you know, on a geopolitical kind of macro basis, these are really, really interesting times because it's not just sector driven. Right? It's not like you know. In the past, we could look at particular sectors. It could be biotech, it could be energy, it could be whatever. You know, you know. From my perspective, being you know a macro fund guy, I'll buy anything. I'll buy baked beans if they make sense. I really, I'm agnostic. Right. <laughs> to you know some sectors, and you know, for for many many years, we weren't in energy, and now we're falls deep in it like we you know and so call me in 10 years time we'll probably be in something else but what i've never had before is kind of this this geographical dispersion taking place that's just so extreme um and 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 that exacerbates the underlying sectors themselves right right
1: because um, you're you're disrupting and- supply chains but in an uneven way, right? I mean, we already have supply chain disruption anyway, right? And that's still not fixed. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, it's you're having this, you know, yeah. uneven like push pull um, that's going that's affecting everything. I mean, you know, if you look at how interconnected, for example, the, you know, U.S. and Canada are say for NAFTA. Like, take our automobile industry, for example. I mean, um, you know, Ford you know, and Chevy and, you know, all the big American companies, I mean, have, you know, plants here in Canada, um, you know, they go back and forth with what, uh, what they make in order to actually put a car together. Right. Um, I mean, there's parts of going back and forth ever everywhere. Um, you know, same with Mexico, but um, I mean, it's, I, I think we're in for, I, I, Trade in, in North America is going to, um, I think, start suffering kind of some of the crisis that we're seeing in Europe right now. But I don't think North America, I mean, is immune to the energy crisis or uh, supply chain crisis within the continent.
0: Well, it would be less susceptible, I guess, if domestically and internally you didn't have the same pressures of breakdowns in supply chain. So, you know, if you look at the restrictions just within the United States, you know, each and every state is quite different. Right. And so moving goods and services around in New York now is vastly different to doing so in Texas or in Florida and right. just seeing that. So it's it's almost like we can't even take these, what we previously looked at as countries and say, okay, that's doing X and there's, and we can... Right. We can map out and go okay they've got this and this and this and this and the supply chains are broken in these different parts here and where else could they source this and we started doing this back in sort of march of last of 2020 when we started seeing the shutdowns and i immediately started i got a whiteboard here and i started mapping out the world and going okay where are the supply chains for what goods and services how are they going to likely be impacted? And what are the second, third, fourth order consequences? And you can, you know, trying to just get an understanding of what that looked like. And at the time, we were looking at geographic countries and then Correct. looking at trade agreements, right? And you could say, oh, Canada. You... And at the time, you could have said, you know what? North America's fine, pretty much. Right. Largely, okay. okay? Fairly self-sufficient in energy. It's, I mean, just food. Uh, navigable rivers, the whole lot. It's like they're pretty much okay. <clears throat> Europe is a little bit more difficult. Um, Asia's, you know, so you could look at that. And now what we've moved into is within each country, you've got the splintering and factioning. Right. And so in the United States, you're almost now redrawing all that and going, oh, I mean, I've literally been doing it with some friends. We were sitting and saying, okay, <laughs> let's play the theoretical game and say, the U.S. splinters into two or three different. It doesn't have to be countries, or just economic structures. Right. You know, um, your know, Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Idaho—like you know, the, the basically the red states. You know, what do they have? What, and because the likelihood is that they're going to be more free to trade with one another on state uh, state lines and so on and so forth, and and it's. You know, it's just it's incredibly disruptive um, to to everything, um, but yeah. So when you and, and you know the world that we built is one whereby just in time inventory has has been the standard. Um, the idea that just because you might be able to grow pears. Um, you might you not. Get them anytime. You,
1: know,
0: <laughs> you can get them from Canada or from somewhere else and they can do it cheaper. So let's right. just let them do it. Um, and now that's all just getting chucked up in the air. So I think there's certainly going to be a massive drive towards more self-sustainability, just as a pure economic uh, reality of what has to take place. Um, but you know, if you're going to go get tribal on it, what it means is not just production, supply, and and rebuilding of alliances. Um, It's also the protection of those goods and services. Um, And so all of those things, when I look through all of that, it's quite deflationary on certain aspects of the market, but it's extraordinarily inflationary on others and so often people will say you know are we are we in for deflation or inflation and i'm like yes <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly i'm stagflation because i think you're, you're going to have persistent pressure in the commodities markets no matter what the fed does you know i don't care if they're hiking and they're you know that's supposed to create deflation because um, there's a ton of deflationistas all well over Twitter, as you well know. But my argument is, you know, the commodities industry is um, you're going to see persistent inflation there. So we're going to, you know, hit a stagflationary area, area right? And if we look back into, say, the 1970s, the last time we really saw a stagflation, um, you know, energy did extremely well. Uh, metals did extremely well, so you saw commodities do extremely well. I mean, if you call very high prices extreme, but those industries mm. did extremely well um, if you're investing in those industries. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's that's where we are. I, I think that the Fed is behind the curve as usual, and no matter what they do at this point, they are not going to stave off inflation in the areas that they really need to be focusing on. Right. Now that the
0: feds, feds, not so, what do you, if we break down, we've got fossil fuel energy side of things. We've got the, so we call it a renewables, alternative energy space, which is your base metals. Right. Um, and then you've got the knock on effects, which is down to like things like food. Is there anything else that you're watching and monitoring that I you mean- think is worth? Considering? Uh,
1: I mean, those are my three main themes, right? Themes right now, or have been for for a couple of years. And I think going forward, you know, um, to 2025, 2030, possibly some of them are really agriculture, um, metals, and energies, really, you know, my main kind of my my macro themes that that I've kind of been uh, writing about and uh, investing in.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the, the sort of obvious ones. They're also what's interesting also is that they're fairly price insensitive, in that they form the backbone of Western civilization.
1: Well, it's everything, right? And without energy, them. you can't do anything without yeah. energy. Period. So, um, you know, and you could take that. Or, I mean, you know, you could take just the rise in energy prices and energy prices and pretty much um, just use that as a basis for. Um, any, you know, any of your investments, um, you know, if if you're looking at, you know, anything energy intensive, or, Mm. um, you know, I mean, you can play it so many ways, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be with metals and and agriculture. I mean, um, it affects all all businesses, right? So your top of the line, usually for a company, is your energy costs, right? Aside from your workforce.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it drives all the way through into, you know, I, was, I was having a chat with a client who, um, he's over in California and he's got a chain of um, dealerships that sell secondhand motor cars. And we were- That industry you know, base, crazy. He's, well, you know, what's interesting for him is like he said his business is, is a way better business than manufacturing. Because he can he can throttle up and down um, much more easily, like his so his opex he can actually move as he needs to, right? So he, right. you know yes he's got he's kind of his fixed costs or or his leases on on particular lots, right? Um, but then he can roll those and he can kind of move. He's got some flexibility within it, but really in terms of the um, the demand and supply, he's got some flexibility to move and he can adjust his prices like that. Right. Whereas if you're thinking about a manufacturer, like let's say you're VW, like you've got all these huge fixed costs um, and you're trying to project out demand. And it's like, who can figure out what demand is going to be when you've got all these governments that are putting in all sorts of restrictions or like, that if, like, if you, if you make a diesel car, will it even be allowed?
1: <laughs> right. Know? Or, yeah, you know, but but how we're going to make this many EVs. Are they even going to sell? Is there a market for it? I mean, yep. you know, I mean, if it, you, you got to look at what your market is, I mean, you know, if you look at some place like the United States, right. I mean, the United States is huge. Everybody drives. Right. And so I think that EV transition is going to be very difficult for the you know, for people in the U.S. or Canada, they say that drive a lot, um, because you're going to have to make it. You know, you're going to have to have a longer drive period, and you're going to have to have chargers everywhere, right? You ha- you can't switch to something that is less convenient for people for sure. it to really catch on, right?
0: Or or and that's where the governments will often try and put in incentives or punishments to try and, and, you know, nudge people in the direction that they want them to. But all of that is stagflationary, right? Because it's not market forces that are driving it. It's, right. it's you know, a situation where your diesel, for example, is half the cost of EVs. And they go, well, we don't want you to make diesel choice. So we have to tax diesel and maybe put in rebates on buying an EV or whatever the case might be. So they, but, but all it does is it just pushes the prices up, which is less supply of everything. And, and less consumption. Um, and, you know, this all comes into like what we, if, if you go back and you think about the previous cycles that we've had, at least in, in my professional career, inflation has always been basically a, a demand led inflation. It's been emerging markets. It was the bricks. It was all of that. Um, and so there's this, you know, sort of, misunderstanding or at least not a um, not an ability to kind of think possibilities through at the moment where people are going well we're not getting that level of demand like china looks like it's not necessarily coming through with the demand it's not growing and so we don't have demand so how can you have inflation And all of this is just supply
1: side. Supply side, exactly. That's what not. That's what everybody. I think that's what all these deflationistas are. You know, kind of how I think they're kind of. I don't want to say looking at it wrong, but I they're not looking at the supply side because it's been a very long time before we've had supply side inflation, and um, you know they. It's not transitory. Right. We still, you know, nothing is fixed yet. Right. Nothing's even close to fixed yet. In fact, countries are trying to make it worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, we're, we're, we're certainly in for, um, I think an interesting day. Um, and certainly it doesn't feel like, like the, the solutions to the problems that we've just discussed Um, have always been and will always be opening free markets and allowing capital to move to where it's treated best. And the impediments that are being increasingly placed on that actually taking place are just exacerbating those issues. And that's why I think we've got at least probably a decade of this. And then coupled with that is we have this extraordinary situation where monetary policy is just continuing to do what they've done before, which has been loose. And now we have fiscal and fiscal we didn't have. And now we've got a lot of fiscal, which is all along this green deal stuff. And, and that's going um, to have an impact on the base metal side of things. But I think it's also going to exacerbate and accelerate that geopolitical shift that we, we yeah. alluded to, whereby certain countries are going to go, you know what, this, we're not playing that game we were, we we're going to play this game. Right. And other countries are going to go, no, 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 we're, you know, we're doing this over here. This is the great leap forward and everyone's going to, you know, follow.
1: <laughs> right. And we're already seeing that, right. You know, we have like, you know, China, regardless of what they say, you know, watch what they do. Right. They, you yeah. know, they just increased their coal production and consumption this year, ten, almost tenfold fold, 250 uh, MT's, right? That's for a lot for a year in 2021. Um, and then you have Russia too, who's, you know, like Green New Deal. Okay, <laughs> we'll stick with oil and gas. Let's drill some more in the Arctic, right? And so you're already <laughs> seeing that kind of, you know, um, you know countries are going to do what suits them best, regardless of what Europe and uh, the United States or Europe and North America says. Right. A hundred percent, a hundred
0: percent. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Um, otherwise, I won't keep you any longer.
1: No, I mean, I think we're good. We covered quite a lot, I think, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Basically, we're in for a lot of fun.
1: We're in for a lot of fun. <laughs> I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, it sounds grim, <laughs> but, you know, if you're in the markets, um, there's a lot of opportunity, probably, um, you know, the most we've seen in a, in a, in a very long while. Um, nice to get away from tech for a little bit, too.
0: Right? <laughs> which, which you know, increasingly doesn't make it hasn't made some sense for some time. I agree. Um, you know, unprofitable companies that that have benefited as a consequence of lowering interest rates continuously and pushing more and more people down the risk curve.
1: Exactly. Um, and I think
0: that entire that entire risk equation is getting very rapidly unwound um and yeah so um anyway um where where can people find you i know um of course is is your twitter handle
1: yes i'm on at at s-c-h-i-g-r-l um i also write for hedgefundtelemetry.com i write an energy uh note and then um i just joined um, the intelligence quarterly where I write a metals note.
0: Very good. Well, I, I strongly encourage anyone listening to check out Chigel's Tracy's wonderful material. It's, it's excellent. Um, it, she really digs in like deep into um, all of the numbers and, and gets the sort of granular data, which is, is, is definitely a go-to for us. So um But thanks so much for your time, Tracy, and um, wonderful to chat again. Definitely. Thanks for listening to the show. Search for capitalist exploits to learn how we are investing for these unique times.